0: Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on US Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. tuning in for this episode of scotus cast i'm your host nick garfinkel on behalf of the faculty division of the federal society on november 1st the u.s supreme court heard an oral argument in the consolidated cases whole woman's health versus jackson in united states versus texas whole woman's health asked whether a state can insulate from federal court review a law that may prohibit the exercise of a constitutional right by delegating to the public the authority to enforce that prohibition and united states versus texas The court considered the authority of the federal government to bring suit and obtain injunctive or declaratory relief against a state, state court judges, and other state officials or private parties to prohibit SB-8, a Texas abortion regulation, from being enforced. Joining today to discuss these cases are Professor Stephen Sachs, the Antonin Scalia Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, and Professor Howard Wasserman of Florida International University College of Law.
1: Thank you very much for having me, and, and thank you all for uh, joining us today. Uh, so I'll start with a very brief overview of of the Texas law, which was uh, enacted as SB eight, um, and the the main substantive uh, provision of it is a prohibition on abortions uh, after detection of a fetal heartbeat, uh, which occurs usually around five or six weeks of pregnancy. Um, what made this law different is that the state eliminated any public enforcement of the law, the usual mechanisms for enforcement of, of the law, in favor of exclusive private enforcement. It created a cause of action for any person to sue over a prohibited abortion, regardless of that person, of whether that person had uh, had suffered any injury. Uh, And it allowed for recovery of of statutory damages of at least $10,000 per abortion, uh, an injunction to uh, stop further uh, violation of the statute, uh, as well as attorney's fees. And the idea was to use private enforcement in order to uh, uh, in in, in as, as the new mechanism uh, for uh, trying to stop the conduct that the state wanted to stop. Um, now, the and the idea behind this was to make pre-enforcement challenges to the law difficult, because the normal move of sue the responsible executive branch official, the official charged with enforcing the law, wasn't available. Um, so, the whole women's health lawsuit was a lawsuit brought by a combination of doctors and reproductive health providers, as well as advocacy organizations. And they tried to follow the usual path and sue. Uh, a wide array of, of public officials, including the attorney general and the executive commissioner of the, Depar- the State Department of Health Services, the usual defendants um, in, uh, in a pre-enforcement abortion case. Uh, they also sued the heads of the medical nursing and other licensing boards, and they sued a class of court clerks and state court judges. Uh, the, um, and, and then finally they sued uh, Mark Dixon, who's the head of the East Texas Right to Life um, as a potential SBA plaintiff, arguing that he was functionally uh, a, state, a state actor. Um, The district court found that all of these were proper defendants. The uh, fifth, uh, that decision was appealed. The Fifth Circuit issued a stay of all district court proceedings uh, pending appeal. Uh, At the beginning of September in the shadow docket decision that drew a lot of attention, the Supreme Court uh, declined to enjoin enforcement of the law uh, uh, pending litigation, noting all of the procedural difficulties with the with the case, uh, and then it later uh, granted cert on the questions of whether any of these are proper defendants.
2: Uh, Professor Sachs, thank you. Um, so the. Uh, United States got involved uh, in September after the Supreme Court initially declined to lift the stay uh, that the Fifth Circuit had granted um, in the Whole Woman's Health, and it sued the state of Texas. In the same district court, it was assigned to the same district judge. And what the United States sought in its complaint Uh, was injunctive and declaratory relief against the state. It argued first that the state was violating the 14th Amendment and the Supremacy Clause by uh, allegedly nullifying uh, the rights within its borders, and also was interfering with federal agencies and contractors and so on, who might be providing or obliged to provide abortions within Texas's borders. Um, the United States wanted both declaratory and injunctive relief, essentially re- preventing Texas from enforcing uh SB-8 in any way, and also wanted that relief under Rule 65 of the Rules of Civil Procedure to extend to all of Texas's aff- uh, officers, agents, employees, meaning state judges, state court clerks, other um, state officials, and also to all others in active concert or participation with the state, which the U.S. understood as extending to uh, private plaintiffs as well, who would be bringing suit under SB8. Um, the United States sought a preliminary injunction in district court, which a month later the district court granted, um, and it granted it essentially in full. Um, it restricted the docketing, maintaining, hearing, uh, you know, resolving of SB8 cases. Basically, anything that goes on in Texas state court involving SB8 was within the scope of its injunction, um, and uh the united states or sorry texas appealed the fifth circuit uh granted a temporary administrative stay of the district court's preliminary injunction and then further stated pending disposition of the fifth circuit appeal and at that point the United States went to the Supreme Court asking them to lift the Fifth Circuit stay or in the alternative to grant uh, certiorari before judgment and that's what the Supreme Court did. The Supreme Court uh, granted certiorari limited to one question, namely could the United States sue in federal court for injunctive declaratory relief against Texas and applying to all of its judges, clerks, private uh, plaintiffs, etc. And so those were the questions that were before the court uh, before yesterday's argument. Uh, so now back to Professor Wassum.
1: So whole woman's health was up first. Um, and much to my surprise, uh, a lot of the court seemed very receptive to the plaintiff's arguments. And it's hard to read tea leaves, but seemed inclined to uh, find that The plaintiffs had uh, found a proper defendant and could uh, uh, proceed via the usual uh, pre enforcement uh, uh, method. And I wanna uh, just highlight four issues that. Um, that jumped out at me from from the argument. First is that there seemed to be two theories floating around on which the plaintiffs could proceed. The theory that they put forward and that the justices didn't reject out of hand was that the federal court could issue an injunction prohibiting state court clerks from accepting the lawsuits, from accepting the uh, SB8 suits and docketing them and putting them in the court's file. Um, now, the, the, the complaint had gone after uh, clerks to stop them from docketing the cases and state court judges to stop them from adjudicating. The plaintiffs ran from this idea of stopping judges uh, because there is language in the court's decision in ex parte young, the decision that allows for these sorts of pre-enforcement lawsuits against executive officials, but there's language in ex parte young um, that says you can sue and enjoin executive officers. You can't sue and enjoin judges, state court judges, to stop them from adjudicating. Um, there's no adverseness. They're not executing the law in any meaningful uh, uh, sense of the way that we understand that word, but the courts seem to buy into the argument from the plaintiffs that, well, okay, that's true for judges, but clerks are doing an administrative rather than adjudicative function. They're taking the documents and they are and they are filing them. Um, and that is something that looks a little bit more like ex- uh, more executive. They're not enforcing, but they are allowing the lawsuits to be commenced. They are necessary for a lawsuit to be commenced. So that was the plaintiff's argument, and the justices were mildly receptive to it. the The other path that, to me, makes more sense was put forward by Justice Sotomayor, and then later echoed by Justices Kagan. And Breyer. And they pointed out that in the ordinary criminal case, an ordinary challenge to a criminal, a, a law that's enforced through criminal sanctions the plaintiff or the rights holder sues the Attorney General, and if they get an injunction against the Attorney General, that also would stop any individual district attorney from commencing a lawsuit to enforce that statute. And so uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer uh, floated this idea of well- Sue the attorney general who has some residual enforcement authority, and by getting at him, you are getting at all of the underlings who have their own individualized enforcement authority. So sort of likening any individual SBA plaintiff to a a district attorney. Um, And that, to me, has the advantage of being a little bit more consistent with how ex parte young and and pre-enforcement offensive constitutional litigation works. Um, It also depends on an important issue that wasn't really discussed but that the court would have to resolve, which is that I believe that the structure of SB-8 by delegating this exclusive enforcement authority to private individuals, makes those private individuals into state actors. It makes them uh, persons acting under color of law who are subject to suit for constitutional violation. So with that extra step, um, by you treat them more like public officials and it also can limit it to SBA8 as a fairly unique statute uh, rather than um, potentially creating mechanisms whereby any tort defendant uh, fearing a state court suit could now run and sue a, uh, could now run and sue uh, the clerk of court. Um, second, there was a lot of focus on the various limitations on state law litigation, on the fact that, uh, venue in an SBA at SBA action can be uh, in it can be anywhere in Texas. That there is no non-mutual preclusion from any judgment. Um, that uh, the attorneys' fees are one-way. An SBA plaintiff can recover fees if he prevails, but an SBA defendant cannot recover fees. Um, uh, if, if, if the claim fails. And the implication seemed to be that the way the state court litigation was structured was inherently unfair, was biased in favor of the plaintiff, and that rendered uh, it insufficient that rights holders are able to defend these cases in state court. Um, Third, and the thing that was getting a lot of attention uh, in some of the media coverage was the Parade of Horribles, that this is not limited only to uh, abortion, but states could do the, you know, uh, California, New York could do this with gun rights and Arkansas could have done this with school segregation or same-sex marriage, or religion—that any state now could say conduct that is otherwise constitutionally protected is unlawful, and any person may sue any other person who engages in that constitutionally um, protected conduct—and—and um, that—and—and and several justices brought up questions, uh, questions like that. Um, The problem with that is it really begs the question of whether or not these laws are in fact problematic. Just saying that the law could be reproduced is only a problem if the law that's being reproduced is problematic. The mere fact that it may, that we may see other examples doesn't by itself um, establish anything. Um, And then the fourth thing I would point out is something that Professor Sachs wrote in a blog post at the Vala Conspiracy this morning um, that was really missing from the argument was the complete absence of any suggestion of a limiting principle um, that uh, would allow the court to allow for the offensive litigation that the plaintiffs are trying to pursue here, Without opening the the floodgates of, and I hate using that term. So without opening the door to the federal courthouse for any rights holder uh, wanting to challenge a potential enforcement of any law. So uh, is it, it, there's what is it about SB8 that is so different in a way that it, in a, in a way that matters that the next time CNN is facing a lawsuit. It won't simply sue the state court clerk and uh, sue the state court clerk to stop the clerk from accepting the lawsuit, and they and therefore get the case into uh, get the case into federal court. Um, And neither the plaintiffs nor the court really seem to identify any such limiting any such limiting principles. So. Reading the tea leaves, I do think the plaintiffs are going to win. I think the big question is going to be the is going to be how the court writes the opinion, whether this is uh, you know good for one for one ride only, or if the court's going to do some real damage to how constitutional litigation uh, proceeds.
2: So the um, U.S. versus Texas argument um, proceeded somewhat differently. I think the court. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not good at reading tea leaves. I won't hazard any predictions about who's going to win and who's going to lose. But I can say that the court seemed more interested in letting uh, Whole Women's Health win than they did in letting the United States win. Um, so the uh, the issue that the uh, new Solicitor General, this was her uh, first argument uh, in that position before the court, um, faced was, uh, you know, why exactly does the U.S. get to sue here? And when is it allowed to sue? And so the argument, the, the answers to those in some ways overlapped and her argument was essentially that sort of the US has a sovereign interest in preventing the nullification of federal uh, constitutional law by a state. And that nullification occurs whenever a state is able to choke off the avenues of relief either Uh, pre enforcement with regard to sort of 1983 or ex parte young by channeling litigation through private actors, and also post enforcement by um, all of these different kinds of uh, sort of stack the deck procedural moves, um, such as lack of attorneys fees and so on. Um, And the difficulty that that argument faced is that it seemed to be sort of targeted precisely at um, the various features of SB8, and it was much harder for the sister General to articulate what's the general category of statutes that do this. So, how much pressure do you need before one would say federal law has been nullified in Texas? You know, how difficult does it have to be? Um, and the uh, you know, where again, and even Justice Breyer uh, raised this worry: is um, you know, we don't want to say that all tort suits are uh, potential avenues for the United States to sue inequity equity um, under In Debs um, and to go after judges and court clerks. Um, so, if that's not going to be the the rule, um, not every unconstitutional tort law will trigger this. Then you know, there have to be some additional thresholds, and it wasn't entirely clear what the answer was. Um, there's a lot of discussion back and forth on that point. Also, a lot of discussion on whether the private individuals who might bring suits under this law really were acting under uh, in concert and participation with the, the state of Texas, um, and a disagreement on that point. Um, when Texas's uh, uh, attorney stood up, the uh, issues there were really um, again sort of part of the parade of horrible questions. You know how tough can Texas make it? Can I have a million dollars? Can I have, as, as he suggested, $5 billion penalties and court is on the moon? You know, What is the threshold here for saying that Texas has made it impossible to challenge? And his argument essentially was, look, if there are going to be procedural due process challenges to the attorney's fees provision or the issue preclusion provision or court being on the moon, those can be raised. But those weren't the um, issues that were raised here. Um, there were also questions that came up in both uh, of the main parties' arguments about um, what happens if the plaintiffs prevail in Whole Women's Health. So, would a victory for the plaintiffs in the Whole Women's Health show that, in fact, no special lawsuit is needed here, and therefore the U.S. has no case? Um, are the are the two claims sort of inversely tied together in that way? Um, There was also uh, appearance by uh, uh, Jonathan Mitchell for the interveners in the case. Um, These are private individuals who have expressed interest in bringing suits under SB-8, but only in circumstances that do not violate Roe and Casey. So um, circumstances that are left out by uh, Roe and Casey, but are nonetheless uh, included in the text of SB-8. SB-8 has as ironclad a severability clause as law professors know how to write. Um, And so the issue was whether um, an injunction uh, should, as the district courts had, extend to all suits filed under SB-8, or whether it should only apply to uh, suits filed under SB-8 that would uh, restrict conduct uh, ostensibly protected by Rowan Casey, Um, and uh, the Solicitor General had suggested that the court shouldn't get into the details of trying to figure out what is and isn't um, protected, and the interveners um, of course, argue that the uh, not only that they are not bound by uh, an injunction against the state because they're not acting in active concert or participation, but also that their claims are perfectly lawful and should be allowed to proceed. Um, the uh, The difficult issue I see in the Whole Women's Health case is trying to articulate why the court clerks would be an appropriate defendant. Um, you know, the theory of ex parte Young is when the prosecutor files a prosecution based on an unconstitutional statute, they are themselves violating the constitution somehow. It's not totally clear to me that that's correct. Um, And therefore that they sort of lose the official character and the protection that sovereign immunity might otherwise confer. Um, I don't know that that argument can be made about the court clerks because when the court clerks stamp a complaint is being received, they are not expressing any judgment whatsoever about the merits of that complaint. Um, They are not sort of standing behind it. They're not adverse to the uh, defendant as, a, as an opposing party in the way that you could argue that the prosecutor is kind of like an opposing party. I mean, in, in real terms, the state is the opposing party. You know, The state of Minnesota was the opposing party in Ex parte Young. We couldn't enjoin them because of sovereign immunity, so we let you go after the prosecutor. That's what's generously called the fiction of Ex parte Young and sometimes might be more of a falsehood. Um, but the idea of uh, it is that the prosecutors in some sense at fault here. I don't think the court clerks are at fault. And um, it's been, you know, looking at the details of Ex parte Young, you know, the whole machinery of the court system is in some sense outside its scope. And so I, I think it would be a difficult opinion to write. I think it sounds better an oral argument than it would actually in the text of the opinion to explain how the court clerks lose their status as officials because they're violating the constitution.
1: And that's, that's really why I I, I thought both the judges and clerks theory together uh, uh, really makes no sense and just opens the door to a complete change to how uh, constitutional litigation operates. I'm willing to accept uh, uh, that fiction of ex parte young, but the constitutional violation was um was the filing and the imposition of liability under the suit. And all of that happens because of the executive official who's enforcing the law. The judges aren't doing anything adverse to the to the plaintiff in adjudicating that. Um, and and neither are the clerks. Um, part of the reason going in, I hoped that the the United States suit was, the would be the one that the court would ride with was I thought it could it would allow the court to resolve this case um as something weird without ultimately doing a huge amount of damage because um you know in some ways SB8 uh we wrote was was the perfect storm because you had this really unique mechanism uh plus exclusive litigation plus the left's uh, uh, darling privilege as somebody, as somebody referred to it. Um, and he, but even if you saw a whole bunch of copycat laws, the United States isn't going to sue over every one of them. It can't because it doesn't have the resources and it won't just because different political and policy preferences are going to guide different, uh, different agencies. So I thought that would be the way to address this one unique problem without causing longer term, changes to how constitutional rights are litigated.
2: One more thought, and I don't need to delay the questions, but um, is that the the alternative solution of going after the attorney general, I think, also has some difficulty. Because even in a world where the attorney general is standing in for district attorneys, at least they're all state officials, and at least they're all plausibly connected in some hierarchy of, of supervision. The private plaintiffs really aren't state officials. Um, You know, even if they are are allowed to sue without personal injury, they take home ten thousand dollars for their own pockets. It's not for the state treasury. Um, And you could imagine Texas passing a new version of the statute if it didn't want to run the risk of, of these individuals being called private AGs. You could pass a new version of the statute that would limit suits to you know, people who are related to the uh, aborted fetus or people who are, um, you know, within a thousand feet of the abortion clinic when it's performed or people who have expressed their willingness to adopt children um, you know, when the mother might otherwise choose abortion. And so, you know, you can imagine some class of persons who have a stronger claim of injury here. Um, and if the state, you know, sort of tweaks it a little bit, um, they would very easily get around um, the, the kind of limitation that the, the court would have would already have spent a lot of resources in sort of propping up and trying to make plausible.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUS Cast. SCOTUS-Cast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including ScotusCast and Practice Group podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org/multimedia. That's fedso slash multimedia
1: This has been a Fedsock audio
0: production.